Let's Talk Outdoors is recorded on the homelands of many nations, including the Cree, Soto, Assiniboine, Dene, Dakota, Lakota, Nakota, and Métis nations on the Treaty 6 and Treaty 4 territories. We encourage you to always learn more about the stories of the land on which you live, work, and play. Hi, I'm Mike. And I'm Leah. And this is Let's Talk Outdoors. Today we're talking to the woman, the myth, the legend, Anne Coxworth. Anne has been involved in the environmental movement for decades, where she has shared her knowledge and passion for the natural world with generations of volunteers, professionals, and decision makers. We were lucky to have a chance to sit down with Anne to learn more about her life in this sector and how a young British scientist ended up rooting herself in Saskatchewan. Coxworth, thanks so much for being with us today. Um, and you have a bachelor degree in chemistry from the University of Durham in UK, a master's of science from Smith College in the United States, and a master's of science in nuclear chemistry from Berkeley. How did a person born in the UK who completed their various degrees in Europe and the United States end up in Saskatchewan? <laughs> um, I ended up in Saskatchewan because when I was in Berkeley, I fell in love and married uh, a Canadian uh, and uh, his job brought us to Saskatchewan. Mm, I feel like that's how so many people get dragged. And then they, once they're here, they're like, hey, this is great, but yeah. Yeah, and actually I, I really love Saskatchewan from the first time I saw it. Um, it's a good place to be. Mm. Um, with your background in science, do you have a moment or experience that pulled you into the world of science? Yes, I think I can say I have. Um, and it was when I was in high school and uh, in my chemistry class, I first learned about the periodic table of the elements and uh, the structure of the atom and to me it was so amazing to sort of see an explanation of how different elements behave because of their atomic structure and i thought this is us so fascinating so amazing this is what i want to learn more about so I think that was probably the the turning moment uh, that led me to where I <laughs> to where I am now, and <clears throat> particularly led me eventually to Berkeley um, because I found you know my great interest was in um, atomic structure and. Um, by the time I graduated from high school, I knew that Berkeley was the place to go to pursue that interest. So eventually I ended up there. And, and as someone who completed their master's in nuclear chemistry, what made you to decide to join the anti-nuclear movement? 
you know, I sometimes even resist calling myself an anti-nuke. Um, during the time I was working in that field, I was sort of totally immersed in it and, you know, totally convinced that this was um, a very positive thing to be pursuing. And it was really only after I moved to Canada and uh, instead of working amongst a bunch of other nuclear scientists, I was at home raising babies and listening to CBC and learning that there were some serious downsides to nuclear power. Um, and the more I the more I sort of learned about it from, in a sense, outside the system, the more I began to realize, hey, there are some really serious problems here. And um, you know, my my feeling now is that there there are problems with a lot of ways we can um, generate electricity. And in Saskatchewan and generally in Canada, we have a lot of options. We have we have enough um, environment friendly options that we don't need to expose ourselves to the downsides of the nuclear option. Just for maybe some of the viewers or listeners, sorry. Um, what what would be some downside? Like, what would be the downsides of nuclear power? Maybe the positive pros as well. Yeah. <clears throat> well, the the two chief downsides in my uh, that I feel are important are the problem of the waste management, the used nuclear fuel that remains hazardous for tens of thousands of years. And we have no human experience of safeguarding anything for that length of time. Mm. And so it, it's a huge burden that we are placing on future generations um, by accumulating um, all of these wastes. And we still don't really have um, a satisfactory way of managing them. Um, you know, it, it's really, it's really impossible to tell what will happen to storage sites over a ten thousand year time frame. Mm. I mean, if you <laughs> if you think back ten thousand years and think how different society was uh, ten thousand years ago, and try to imagine people living on the land at that time, trying to plan for the year 2022. Uh, I mean, it's, it's just unreal. So, you know, that is one of my major concerns. Mm. Um, <clears throat> and obviously another one is the potential for nuclear materials to be diverted for for uh, weapons use, um, and that can happen in, in various forms. Um, 
so those are the the, the two major um, issues as far as I'm concerned. Um, you know, we could also talk about the the financial costs and um, certainly uh, there's been wide experience worldwide that generally nuclear power ends up costing a lot more than it's originally budgeted to cost. Um, the benefits, um, I mean, obviously a major one now is the fact that uh, it doesn't generate a lot of greenhouse gases. Uh, it's not totally greenhouse gas free, but uh, compared with the fossil fuels, it's a, you know, it's a, it's a big improvement. Um, um, it doesn't produce traditional air pollution the way burning fossil fuels does. The uh, sort of actual quantity of material needed in the form of fuel is, is small. So you're not having train loads of coal traveling across the country. Um, yeah, so, you know, there, there certainly are some benefits. Yeah, I find that that's something I've heard like quite a bit of people pushing for now is, is when, since we have to go off, you know, coal or whatever, we have to change up our energy sector quite a bit. So they're saying that nuclear power is the kind of way of the future um, for kind of revamping. And even Saskatchewan, I think now there's a renewed push to do, even if it's small scale reactors in some capacity yeah. here too. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, certainly um, the Saskatchewan government is very vigorously promoting the idea of small nuclear reactors as a substitute for some of our fossil fuel use. And um, I think that's partly motivated by the, um, the need to support the uranium industry. Um, and of course, the uranium industry is anticipating um, a lot of growth if, if the small reactors become popular. Mm -hmm. The other, <laughs> I think the other advantage that probably SASC Power sees is that um, they can basically um, sort of easily substitute a nuclear reactor uh, fueled electricity system for a coal fueled one. You know, the grid will work the same way, um, whereas the sort of options that we're promoting, like the, uh, the, the solar and wind ones that rely on uh, a whole lot of distributed energy sources scattered around the province, um, requires a lot more sophistication in the grid than um, one that relies on a sort of more centralized power source. source. And I think what, <clears throat> what Saskatchewan is looking at is um, putting several 300 megawatt um, small reactors in one place so they would be equivalent 
to yeah, 1,000 or 1,200 megawatts of power while in, while in one location. Oh. So you had mentioned earlier that you see that there's some other routes that we could use in Saskatchewan to get energy. Um, can you talk a little bit about what those might be? <laughs> yeah, well, um, you know, SES actually published a, a report um, about a year ago that proposed a plan for electricity supply which um, included a considerable import of hydro from Manitoba and uh, um, um, solar, uh, limited amount of hydro generated in Saskatchewan. We don't have a great deal of hydro potential here. Uh, wind power, I mean, for both wind and solar, we have extremely good resources uh, just waiting to be developed. Um, so I think, the, and the other thing I think we have to focus on is energy management, because the amount of energy we waste or sort of use very inefficiently is huge. So you know it's it's certainly been suggested that there's potential to cut our energy use in half without you know having a, a serious impact on our quality of life mm -hmm. um as we know some people have um insulated their houses so well that they don't need a central heating system uh it, it, we know how to do that and so you know if we can look at reducing our energy demand significantly then the challenge of actually meeting the need becomes much more manageable mm -hmm. and through pretty simple policy too of you know just redoing some housing regulations and policy yeah. and then we can get right on board yeah we built a passive house uh yeah. here yes in, in saskatoon so yeah we don't have any gas going into our house at all it's pretty neat to that's amazing just be doing that but yeah it's it's tough to and, do when and what is it going to take to make that sort of the standard mm -hmm. yeah it'll just yeah. take more voices like yours and that well <laughs> yeah. or more examples like yours i yeah. mean i i think having a showcase like that so that people can see hey this this actually works um i guess it needs some financial policies as well because i guess there are upfront costs that um absolutely yeah uh, which other places around the world they have initiatives to help that and you know they have subsidies yeah. and things to help with that but yeah you also brought up a cool point of not just thinking of Saskatchewan's energy grid as just Saskatchewan's, but you know, joining with Manitoba and Alberta and using all this sort of space we have to 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 create energy across the whole grid there. Yeah, yeah. Um, I mean, uh, <laughs> I'm thinking of you know the whole wastefulness of you know our current lifestyle. It's 
I mean, energy waste is just part of it. I mean, the way we waste materials and so on. I was just struck by, I was just reading an article in The Guardian about the problem of bicycles being dumped in rivers. And in some places, they have to dredge the rivers every year to dredge out all the bicycles that have been disposed of in the river. And there's a photograph of uh, a, a place in China where they have just huge mountains of bicycles that have been discarded. Is there a uh, reason? Like, it, why? One, why is the river this this common place to uh, chuck the it river, into? The river is sort of an invisible place to dump it, mm. and and even apparently places that have um, you know bicycle uh, systems where you can borrow a bike and you know and then return it. A lot of people borrow the bike and when they finish using it instead of returning it oh i see yeah. they toss it in the river but you know i kind of think what kind of mentality do we have as a society that uh you know <laughs> allows that kind of behavior mm -hmm. um so in and sense, you mentioned you mentioned the saskatchewan environmental society earlier um yeah. Do you mind talking a little bit about that organization? Because maybe some folks don't know. Well, it's a it's an organization that was founded in 1970. At the time, worldwide, a lot of environmental organizations um, were started, and it happened around um, a major conference in Stockholm that um, really focused attention on the many environmental crises that the world was facing um, started off the uh, SES started off as a local Saskatoon organization uh, focusing in, initially on local issues such as protection of the riverbank and the uh, creation of Mawasan and the uh, did some educational programming, but then um, gradually branched out more and more to deal with wider Saskatchewan issues, um, such as the Churchill River uh, protection and uh, the uranium mining issues. So we became actually the Saskatchewan Environmental Society rather than the Saskatoon Environmental Society in the early 1980s. Um, now, uh, you know, our, our work is focused on the concept of sustainability. Um, we do a lot of work around um, energy issues, um, around um, education programs that uh, support energy conservation and renewable energy. Um, we intervene a lot in uh, environmental assessment processes. Um, and a lot of my involvement has been with uh, environmental assessments around the 
uranium industry. Um, so from time to time, uh, we've focused on different, say, water issues. For example, the current proposal to increase irrigation out of Lake Diefenbaker uh, is an issue that uh, we have people working on. Um, so it's uh, a combination of, I would say, practical programming to uh, help people find more sustainable ways of living uh, along with policy work where we um, try to influence decision makers at, at all levels. That is a lot of things. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, it's a busy, busy organization. Mm -hmm. Probably hard to, to focus. There's so many <laughs> different topics that you are have a finger in and, and involved in as an organization. Yeah, and you know, different people within the group focus on different areas. And it's all held together by our, our board. And, you know, our board has been wonderful over the years. We've been able to attract really talented people to the board. And um, of course, Alison Brady has been our executive director for many, many years. And uh, she is the kind of the glue that holds it all together. Yeah, I've had the pleasure of working with Alison in the past also. Yeah. How long have you been involved or volunteering and working with BSES? Um, well, I became a member, I think, in 1972. And um, I quit my paid job in 1987 and started working as a volunteer for SES. So that, that goes back, yeah over 30 years, doesn't it? <laughs> 35 years. Yeah. And are there any highlights of your time with SES, the things that really stick out to you? You know, I some things I've found really interesting and I think valuable have been the opportunities I've had to participate in multi-stakeholder processes. And um, for example, um, well, I'm thinking of the um, uh, Saskatchewan Energy Conservation and Development Authority, which existed in the early 90s. Um, and uh, I was one of just three board members of that organization. And it was it was an amazing opportunity. Um, you know, we did um, a lot of, I mean, we, it was funded by the provincial government and we were able to hire extremely good staff people who did really excellent work on the different, um, the different the, the different opportunities that Saskatchewan had 
for energy production and energy conservation. So that was a, a good opportunity. And even prior to that, there was the uh, Saskara's Electrical Energy Options Review Panel, which again was a process that involved a small, <clears throat> a small group of us who traveled around the province holding public hearings to uh, generate suggestions for what direction SAS power should move in in the future. And uh, you know that included an opportunity to to travel uh, to visit major wind farm operations in California and the Rocky Mountain Institute in Colorado as well as the nuclear plants in Ontario and New Brunswick. And so it was, it was again, a really interesting process. And um, in, you know, some of the work I've done on the uranium issues, I've had the opportunity to work fairly closely with the Canadian Nuclear Safety Commission. And I found it really interesting to be sort of part of a group that are approaching a problem from different perspectives. Um, so, I, yeah, I think for me, that would be the highlight that I would recall. Mm -hmm. We talk a lot on this show about neat places to go in, in Saskatchewan and our favorite outdoor places and stuff like that. But it's so important, I think, to highlight folks like you who've made these places an option for people and who have created and, and worked to conserve and protect all these things. And, but you spent decades fighting for a more environmentally sustainable future um, before it was even the cool thing to do. All, and all of it, a lot of it has been with volunteering your time and skills and wisdom. But I get what what has kept you motivated through all the ups and downs of the movement from from for the last few decades. Oh boy! Um, well, it would have to be partly the people I work with. Um, you know, uh, I've just been so fortunate to have wonderful people, both in the board level, on the staffing level, the people I've interacted with through national organizations um that's that's probably been a really important motivator mm. but also it's the sense of i don't know it 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 provides a meaning to I mean, this sounds a bit presumptuous, but I would say it <laughs> provides some meaning for my life. Uh, I don't think that's presumptuous at all. <laughs> um, you know, uh, <laughs> when I when I get into a philosophical mood, I find myself often thinking about the meaning of life, the meaning of an individual life. And I think about the fact okay, I am one individual sort of living for a few decades uh, among, you know, how many million other people and how many billions have lived before me and are going to live after me. 
and all the other living organisms who share the planet with me, what is the meaning of this one little short life in all of that? And, you know, I find the meaning comes in terms of recognizing that I am part of a larger body. And, you know, that body is the earth. And um, I guess I, I, I was just reading the obituary of uh, James Lovelock, you know, who died last month. Um, and he's the guy who introduced us to the concept of Gaia as Gaia as a, um, what we say, a, a living organism, the earth as a living organism, that a, a self-regulating organism. Um, and, you know, each of us has a little role to play in this bigger organism, just the way, say, one blood cell in my body plays a little tiny role in my whole body. So similarly, you know, my life has one little essential role in the body of the earth. So, you know, that's a large part of what motivates me, I think. It's very neat. You've had a huge impact there, which we'll get to later on as well. <laughs> I think that's a really inspirational answer to that that question because <laughs> we can get up in caught up in the doing. I think, or I certainly can, of just doing the next thing and sometimes lose sight of the, the bigger picture of why why we feel so passionate about it or what yeah. keeps us going. Yeah, I mean um, it. It can. <laughs> sort of seeing yourself as just being such a tiny piece, you're kind of on a big planet, it can be intimidating. But, you know, I think from the time I was a child, I always loved being out in wild places where I felt there was just me and the land and the sky. And a sort of feeling of relationship to the much bigger um, creation. And that, mm -hmm. that has stayed with me. Yeah, I, th I think a lot of us probably have that, those experiences. And that's what I'm draws sure. us into this kind of work. Yeah. And to yeah. feel passionately. Uh, we have a question um, about that you used to volunteer with an organization called Open School. Oh, can you, can you, can you share a bit about what that was all about? Yeah, uh, the Open School was uh, part of the Saskatoon Public School System for many, many years. I can't remember how long it lasted, but it involved two classrooms that had kids from grade one to grade seven, uh, all in a classroom together. Uh, and uh, the parents were sort of involved in helping, helping the teachers. Um, so a lot of the uh, 
activities that the kids did were done in small groups that might have kids of different ages uh, participating together. Um, and it drew a lot on the talents of the parents. Um, so um, and kids would, they would study areas like science and social studies through little projects that usually a parent volunteer would, would manage. So I can remember, for example, um, Lynn Oliphant from the Vet College taking uh, groups of kids to, to the Vet College. And I can remember um, a lawyer who took kids to a court case and they learned all about how the legal system worked. And, um, so it was, a, it was a neat experience. Our son was uh, involved in that, in that program, worked really well for him, and particularly for kids whose abilities in different areas are, um, you know, not consistent. So uh, he was always, our son was always weak in math, but very good in language skills and so on. So, you know, he would, he would do math with kids younger than himself and uh, other stuff with kids older than himself. And it worked really well. And he kind of ended up with a good balance. Mm -hmm. What a treat for those teachers to have uh, people as educated as you going and helping along. For, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, well, lawyers and that. you know, I think one reason that it didn't last forever was because a lot of us who were volunteers were mothers who did not have full-time jobs. Mm. And um, the fathers who were involved, a lot of them were university staff people uh, who had some flexibility in their, their time. And um, I would imagine it would be much harder now to get that degree of volunteer involvement from parents. Mm -hmm. Yeah, no kidding. Um, I, in 2018, you won the Lifetime Achievement Award for your work in the environmental sector in Saskatchewan. I was there actually the night you received that award at the Rob Dumont Energy Management ah. Awards. Um, and I remember seeing your list of, of credentials and the things that you've accomplished and just being blown away by, by all the initiatives that you've been a part of for all the years. Um, what, what fight have you found to be the most difficult for you over your time? I, I would think actually probably the present climate issue is one of the most difficult ones that I've been involved in and that most of us have been involved in, in that um, it's such a huge problem. It's global. Uh, it has to be solved by a group. I mean, a worldwide set of actions that, you know, may have downsides for the people who are having to take the action. Um, 
So I think it's what they call a wicked problem. Uh, Not the cool way the kids say it now. It's, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> um, yeah. I mean, we sort of see it right now, say, with the energy crisis that Europe is facing now with the uh, with the, the Ukraine war, um, that Germany is having to reopen coal station, coal generating stations, um, <clears throat> because people just will be too cold in winter if they don't have a heat supply. Um, so there are, I mean, for Germany now to sort of stick with their intention of phasing out coal would be incredibly difficult politically because it would be, it would really hurt people in the, the mm -hmm. quality of life. So, yeah, I, I mean, it's such a difficult issue to, uh, to try and get collaboration around. But I mean, we have these series of global conferences, you know, the conferences of the parties. And, you know, I attended one in 2012, I think it was. And um, people then were talking about Hey, this is a crisis. We've, you know, we've got to cut by such and such a percentage in our greenhouse gas emissions, and all kinds of commitments were made. And then different countries found, well, we really can't, we really can't meet those. And yeah, I think this is probably the most difficult one that we've mm. had to deal with. And I don't know how it's going to end. Yeah. Lee and I have talked about this in previous episodes too, where we're pretty grateful to work with so many young people. Yeah. Um, you know, I'm, I'm fortunate that I teach a whole bunch of kids every year that are pretty motivated around this stuff. So yeah, it always keeps me, you know, really engaged in it and I never get down in the dumps about it, but maybe I'm living under a rock, but I think it's just fantastic that the, the energy that all these people bring. And I think you've, it's you've mentioned that I know in our past exchanges about the people around you at SES and different organizations too. Yeah, it, it is exciting. I agree to see the way uh, young people are, are approaching this issue that they are they are sort of thinking about, you know, this is going to be a real threat to our lives. Um, now, it's very difficult, I think, for all of us to think very far ahead. And, um, you know, until we start actually seeing and feeling the impacts of climate change, it's really hard. I think for a lot of people to take it seriously. And I think the, you know, all of the fires that are taking place all over Europe now and, and on this continent, are, you know, people are beginning to realize that, yeah, this is a serious issue. Um, mm -hmm. and, yeah, sorry. 
I was I was going to say the the impact of little Greta Thunberg mm-hmm. was, was was unprecedented, wasn't it? And you know how I think she motivated a whole generation to to become activists on this issue. Absolutely. Yeah. Um, you've mentioned some some big things and big things that are on lots of people's minds. And one of the questions we ask all of our guests, um, which is a tricky one, uh, or it could be tricky, yeah, <laughs> is if you could change one thing about the world, what would it be? <laughs> you know, you can answer this on two levels. I mean, the first instinct is to think of changes you'd like to see in the way human beings behave. Um, you know, you could say, oh, I would I would change it so that people were not selfish or not greedy um, uh, or that they recognize the um, recognize the harm to the planet that some of their actions have. You can answer it at that level. But, you know, (laughs) when you say things you would change about the world, I tend to go along with James Lovelock in thinking that the world, the earth, is self-regulating and that the earth is going to figure out what needs to happen to um, save itself. And it's a bit presumptuous of me to try and tell it what it should do. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, You know, I could say um, we should stop digging up anything from under the surface of the earth. I mean, this is this is a proposal that some environmentalists have made. Um, yeah, I mean, in some ways that makes a lot of that makes a lot of sense. But, you know, I don't know just what the implications would be. So, you know, I think I just want to abstain from answering that question because I don't think I am qualified to tell the earth what changes need to be made. Classic Ann Coxworth move, flipping the question, the traditional question on its head. <laughs> um, this one, I think you'll be okay to answer, Anne. Um, we, we've had folks that um, they've been throughout all of Saskatchewan. We usually get them to say what their favorite place is. So what would be your favorite place? to visit in Saskatchewan. Um, can I can I have two favorite places? <laughs> sure, only because you you flipped the last one. Yeah. <laughs> um, okay. The the first one would be the shore of Lake Athabasca. Um, sitting I, I still have this image of sitting high up on a sand dune overlooking on the south side of the lake, overlooking the lake to the sort of rugged northern shore 
and it was absolutely unspoiled and wild and beautiful um, and vulnerable. Um, that's one of the images that is very firmly in my in my memory and um, yeah it's an amazing spot but the other favorite place i think would be my own backyard um, and that's because it's it's a little piece of the planet that i have taken responsibility for looking after and so that makes it very special great answers yeah beautiful it's uh that connection to place too is of uh, places of that we live and that, um are close to us is there I, any oh go ahead i was just gonna say you know another another local spot that i really love visiting is um in Chief Whitecap Park, the high park place south end that overlooks the river, where you know you can stand way up above the river and look way down to the south. It's a it's a pretty magic spot. Sounds beautiful. <laughs> We've come to the end of the questions that we had thought of. Is there anything that you were hoping that we would talk about that we haven't talked about that you want to add to our conversation? <laughs> uh, I don't think so. Yeah. Um, <laughs> I'm not sure what I expected. So. <laughs> <laughs> you said how long did you live in the UK and before you moved over to Canada? Um, I left Britain when, just before I was 21, uh, and uh, lived in the United States for five years before coming to Canada. Are one of those places one of your favorite places as a kid? In Britain? Mm -hmm. Oh. <laughs> Yeah, um, you know, I was really fortunate that my family were very much oriented to the outdoors and we used to go on camping holidays, um, which wasn't that common then. You know, we, we took our tents and we um, went in, uh, well, in the Lake District uh and um you know we we lived from the age of 11 we, i lived in the the north of england and so you very quickly get into pretty pretty wild countryside and so you know i i sort of grew up with a lot of outdoor experience um and in fact, one really early experience of nature was during the early years of the war, the Second World War, um, my brother and I were evacuated to a small village in the middle of Dartmoor in Devon. And again, 
very wild country. And um, I loved that environment. Uh, it was uh, something that um, I, I respond to in, and probably one reason I, I love Saskatchewan is because these are places where you can see the extent of the land and the sky and get a sort of a sense of being on the surface of a round planet. I think that speaks volumes to the power of the environment too, of the natural world where there can be a crisis going on around you, but you can still find all these hubs and these places of such neat like beauty and just, you know, you can just enjoy being in that space. Yeah. Um, and I, you know, I, I did, I did my first degree in Britain and immediately afterwards um, found a way to get myself across the Atlantic to, as I say, with the, uh, the goal of getting to Berkeley. Mm. And the, the, uh, the year at Smith College was the step along the way. Um, <laughs> yeah. It just happened that uh, uh, there was a scholarship available that had travel funds associated with it, which I applied for. And um, it was tied to Smith College, which I had never heard of. But once I got there, I discovered <laughs> what a famous place it was. So, you know, it was a very good year and a good introduction to living in America. Well, Anne, that's about all the time we have. Thank you so much for joining us. It's been a pleasure to get to catch up with you. Leah, what did you take away from our conversation with Anne? I really liked hearing about her life journey and how she ended up in Saskatchewan with a very different career than maybe she thought that she was going to have in her early 20s. Um, it made me think that we never really know where we're going in life, even though we might have a plan that, that things happen and circumstances change and our interests and passions change. And also how that applies to young people. We talked a bit in the interview about um, you know, inspiration of, of young people and how you might get to work with lots of young people. Um, and I think a lot about how we maybe don't know the influence that we're having or the perspective that we're offering to someone that might have a, a long-term impact on their life or they may start off in one direction and then remember something later on that, that really had an impact from their younger years. Mike, what was your takeaway from this conversation? I really liked how Anne's philosophy of like, what can I do during my time here on earth to impact, you know, as much as I can in a positive way. And I think that more leaders, like not just policymakers, but just more leaders in all of all structures and institutions of our society need to think that way. And I think that the world will be a pretty, pretty swell place. <laughs>